This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Today we have the honor of hosting our special guest, Lou Engel. Lou joined Doug on our Transforming Leadership series. And if you would like more information about our next Zoom call, you can sign up for email updates at somebodycares.org. And be sure to check out the episode notes at charismapodcastnetwork.com forward slash show forward slash a word and season. Now let's lean in and listen to these two powerhouse revivalists. I just want to kind of set the tone today. I know that most of you will obviously have a high regard and respect and appreciate Lou Engel, who's really, of all the things we could say, is, a, I believe, a prophetic voice for our generation, also a revivalist at heart and carries a passion. I remember Leonard Ravenhill used to tell me that God doesn't answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. And, and I recognize what he meant was that God does answer prayer. God wants us to pray, wants us to seek him, but so much of what we've uh, seen in some of our prayers are are uh, just we are praying with uh, shallow platitudes. We're superficial in some of the things we do, uh, the religious incantations. But what we need is a desperation for God's presence. And, uh, and that's what Lou has really epitomized for us and exemplified for all of us uh, long before the call. I think of the first time I met Lou, it was in the early uh, 90s. In fact, it was Jack Hayford that brought me to L.A. to do Love L.A. and to speak uh, for quite a few meetings in the Love L.A. gathering back in the day. And Pastor Cheon had me come speak at uh, their church in Pasadena. And, and I had the pleasure of, of meeting many great people that remained friends, but Lou Engel and, and, uh, and his passion for the presence of God because his prayers are not born out of just some sort of uh, re, uh, religiosity, but it really is born out of a, a passion for God's presence that provoked him uh, into action and intercession and fasting and prayer. And, and uh, some questions I'm going to have for Lou in a moment. I wanted to share something that just keep going over and over because, uh, as you know, our hearts, uh, many of us are connected as well as the network of ministries that are connected to us, somebody cares uh, nationally and globally, is a heart for prayer and presence with uh, and taking that in a tangible way into our communities for transformations. And, uh, and so I love this quote by William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, when he said over 100 plus years ago in the late 1800s, he said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. That was so prophetic when we consider where we are today in 2020. A.W. Tozer said that self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. And I, I recognize today in our self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-centered, self-self-self society, we have found ourselves with a veil between us and God. What we need desperately is God's presence again for heaven to invade earth 
as Bill Johnson would say, we need the presence of God like never before. Uh, as I wrote even the other day, I'm not beholden to the political party of the elephant or the donkey, but I am submitted to the government of the lamb and the lion. And so my political views are not based on personal preference, uh, my own filtering, but I must come to the centrality of the cross to come to the place of recognizing we can only cross our racial, denominational, generational lines and have true reconciliation if we come to the centrality of the cross, Christ at the center of our lives and in our hearts, because our personal preferences will always divide us. But we're far more united together in Christ when we recognize his manifest presence. In fact, I love what Second Chronicles 5 says, that when they came, the priests came into the holy presence of God, the holy, holy, holy presence of God, that when they came out of his holy presence, that they came not according to division. I can imagine when we come into the presence of a holy God, a triune holy God, we are equalized in his presence. Our personal styles of worship, our racial and ethnic backgrounds, our political views, when we're in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, we're equalized in his holy presence. We're undone in ourselves, as Isaiah 6 would say. We, we need to come to that place of the presence of God. And when we've been in his presence, there's something about the equalization, and we become undivided. When we come out of his holy presence, we're no longer divided, but we have something far more in common together as one voice, one sound of worship for the glory of God to come. And I'm just praying that we would come to that place of putting aside our personal preferences and uh, realize that we are part of the government of the Lamb and the Lion, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is roaring from heaven, and may we hear, and may we be a, a, awakened from our sleep and quit pushing our snooze buttons. So I'm just blessed to have Lou Engle with us today. I want to kind of take us back, Lou, for a moment, of uh, because when I first met you, you were already praying and interceding, and this is before the call. Take us back to that journey that God had put in your heart to give you that kind of passion for prayer that, because uh, we're going to talk in a moment about the fruit of those prayers and your simple obedience, your simple obedience to God has literally changed the course. And I know one of the books that really ministers to you by Derek Prince, but we'll talk about that in a moment because I want to know what it is that, that, that stirred you, Lou, into that place of a passion for God's presence that provoked you into this place of intercession that literally has marked every sphere of the culture, individuals impacting the, the spheres of the culture, some call the seven mountains, because of your obedience. And I know you wouldn't want to take credit for all that, but really you have been uh, an, an exemplary example to all of us of what it means to seek God's presence, have a passion for God that has broken your heart for the, the generation that we're in. And yet we're seeing with our eyes for a moment the possibilities at this critical juncture in our generation. So take us back to what really provoked you and got you moving in the direction of this passion for God and for his presence and for fasting and prayer. Well, Doug, I, I love you. You've always been a provocation. You were doing stadiums before I even thought about it. <laughs> and uh, But I've loved how you've embodied uh, righteousness and justice. And you've really borne the, the nature of Jesus, the man of steel and velvet. <laughs> I love that statement. Jesus is a man who stood for truth like steel, yeah. but he was so filled with compassion. He was velvet. And so I want to be like you, Doug, when I grow up. 
<laughs> but I, I, I look back, I, I got saved through prayer. You know, I was, I was a college student in Christian college. I wasn't a Christian, or at least I, I prayed to receive Christ, but I was so lost. I hated these guys called the gospel team. And, uh, you know, I just thought they were a pack of nerds. But I found out later that they put me on a hit list. Most wanted, least likely to be saved. And they prayed for me for three years. While I played basketball in college, I graduated from Christian college unsaved. And I went back to California. My parents invited me into a charismatic meeting afterglow. They were singing in tongues. The veil was ripped from my soul. And it's like the whole room was light. And out of this, I get converted. I got saved by the singing of tongues. <laughs> so I got saved and ended up going back to Pennsylvania, where I went to school, stepped into a... A, a little country church on the edge of town where a Pentecostal, old Pentecostal preacher uh, talked about prayer and revival. And I got under his tutelage of prayer, fasting. And I just, I just wept all the time. They gave me the keys to the church. I just could not handle the inward revival and love that was going off in my, in my soul. And then I went to seminary. And I got involved in the Jesus movement, and I began to I begin to read revival books, and I don't know, fully understand it. I read uh, 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 the Pursuit of God by Tozer, and I and I read the history of the Welsh revival, and and it just went off in me that I became an incurable hunger for revival, and from that point on, I didn't know how to pray. No one taught me how to pray. I just prayed the fire that was burning in my heart that began a journey uh, of prayer. And then I remember ended up uh, mowing lawns. I quit seminary, mowed lawns for five years. Uh, uh, people were telling us in the Jesus movement, get careers. But my only career was revival. And so I just mowed lawns for five years and prayed in, in tongues for hours behind my lawnmower. And uh, it, was, it was there that, that God spoke to me that I'd be an instrument of revival. And um, and I just got possessed. So then someone began to tell me about fasting. And so I did my first fast, a three-day fast, mowing lawns. And on the third day, I felt like as if heaven was all over me. And I, the presence of God. And, and I felt like, man, this is not I who mows lawn, but Christ who mows lawns in me. And I was, uh, I was rocked for revival. And, uh, and from that point on, I, be, I began to draw near to this call to fasting and prayer. So that was kind of the beginning journey of, uh, of my life, praying for revival, hunger for revival, hunger for the presence. And then fasting began to draw me into a world that I never knew was available in God. Wow. So what birthed this place after I met you in uh, Pasadena, California, back in the 90s? What birthed this vision and broke your heart for this generation to even begin the process of doing the first call in the Washington Mall? I really, Doug, I really go back to 19, uh, 1984 when my friend had the dream. Well, I was, I, I was reading about Azusa Street Revival. And I, it's, to me, it is the critical thing in my life. It's one of two things. And that's where William Seymour, a black man, I just read a book by Gaston Espinosa. His whole life was prepared by God through deep injustice and racism. 
he got above the noise and opened up heaven. And the color line Frank Barberman said was washed away in the blood. I still believe Azusa Street is still our answer for the great racial divide in America to basically sweep away, you know, our, our babble. The babble of our confusion is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where black man leads a nation into revival. I read the book by Frank Bartleman. He fasted so much, and I was reading his book, and the book lit me on fire. I've said this so many times. Moses had a burning bush, but I had a burning book. It lit me on fire, and I drew near to it. Rather than saying this is a cool book, I drew near to the fire. I fasted 18 days, crying out for the mantle of Frank Bartleman. And the final day, the 18th day, I was crying out, Give me the mantle of Frank Bartleman. I prayed like I'd never prayed in my life with loud cries. And the next day, a brother walks up to me and says, Lou, I had this dream last night who had no idea what I was praying. What I was praying. And he said, in this dream, I saw a black and white book, a black book. Uh, and the white title was Revival. It's a black and white book. It still is a black and white book. And in the dream, he said, I turned the inside of the cover. I saw a guy's face, and his name was Frank Bartleman. And his face turned to your face. And in the dream, he says, I've got to get this book to Lou, to Lou Engle. I'm convinced God showed me, showed me the name of the book he wrote about my life before I was ever born. That book is revival. And it's all engaged with a man fasting and praying, connected to the black-white issue. And I still believe. But this is the storyline. About a week later, I went to a Women's Glow meeting. You may remember this. Uh, I was the only man there. I wasn't speaking. I was a sponsor. At the end of the meeting, I'm standing all my, by myself. No ladies coming up to talk to me. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? A black lady walks up to me. And she says, you know, in 1906, there was this black lady praying with this man named Frank Bartleman. She says, I feel like I'm that black lady looking for that Bartleman. I said, lady, we got to talk. God was preparing me back then for what I believe is an Azusa Street type revival, way beyond Azusa, that is actually going to bring a great communion revival where we find ourselves and the color line is washed away in the blood. This is more clear to me than ever, Doug. Let me comment on this. You see, you see, when the riots took place in LA, we prayed for 10 years and fasted with the dream of a black man coming to Come to Los Angeles, there's going to be a great revival. And so I'm watching, it's a replay. Rodney King is beaten by police unlawfully. They weren't charged. And when they weren't charged, the explosion takes place. And I'm watching the LA riots and the Holy Spirit speaks to me so clearly. Lou, what you are watching is revival in the negative. A few prepared vessels were ready to light the city up. But I am going to prepare vessels who walk in forgiveness and mercy in understanding. And I will light the city of Los Angeles up with revival and Pentecostal fires like we have never known. So recently I was given this book by a man named Gaston Espinosa saying that William Seymour was prepared through many issues, prepared in a day of the Jim Crow laws. He would, and went through racism, sitting outside of Parham's uh, a parms a hall hallway because of the Jim Crow laws, and um, and I'm reading this, and it says in this book, four days after Azusa Street, three black men were lynched, and it launched 
the the riots of Atlanta, the worst riots, some of the worst riots in history. I'm realizing that the riots and revival go together. Mm. He actually allows the atmosphere for us to overcome in brotherly love. <laughs> Only a united church can heal a divided nation. That's right. If we can find this, we can find our Pentecost in our day. You think of 1857 when the court rules that Dred Scott is not a person. That same year, the great prayer meeting revival takes place and a million souls are converted. I'm realizing that somehow our nation is wrapped up in race and in forgiveness to loose the greatest revivals of our time. So when I said, when the Lord said this, he said, what you're watching is revival in the negative. Right after that, the revivals break out in 1994. But I feel like that was just a glimpse of the great revival that is on the way for us. I meet Will Ford when God speaks to me to go on the trail of tears. That, that in a dream, started with a dream where it said, I saw there's these drums, native drums in the heavens beating. And it said, this is God's war on abortion. Native Americans must lead it. African Americans must lead it. Every ethnic must lead God's war on abortion. Out of this, we walked a trail of tears. We go through the South, walk 750 miles because we know that abortion is connected to the bloodshed of Native and Black. But I wonder if God is saying that there's coming a calling on the Native peoples and the African-American peoples to actually lead the parade of history. Because those who are the wounded the most, if they can forgive, actually get the most authority to heal a nation. When Jesus went to the cross and said, Father, forgive them, he shook principalities and powers. So when I was with Will Ford, and I'm sorry, I'm just going through this, but you, no. you're you the one that invited me on here. Come on, go on. <laughs> when I'm with Will Ford on this trail of tears, and we're at Montgomery Baptist Church, where uh, Martin Luther King actually preached, we were going to preach the following day, and he and I, a black man and I, made a covenant. We would give our life for the healing of the races and the ending of abortion. That night, he dreams a dream. We pull up to pick up Martin Luther King in our car, and I think it's in our movement, in in this covenantal movement we've just joined ourselves to, he comes out with a white bag with black handles, violently empties the contents, throws the bag to the ground. Will goes to pick it up as a, as a uh, souvenir. And Martin Luther King grabs him by the shoulders and said, do not pick, don't pick up this baggage. He says, we're talking about the dream and we get the key. It's a white bag with black handles. It's how the blacks handle the white baggage. If they can forgive us, they get the authority to heal this whole nation. But I believe what happened, and primarily with, with George Floyd, it was like a Selma moment. The whole nation saw it. We, could, we ignored Michael Brown and Ferguson. We ignored the Carolina storyline. But this one, the whole world, this is bloodshed in open view, and all of us are shocked. And from that point on, I believe God pulled back a veil that is trying to reveal to, the, to us white people, he's trying to unveil the baggage we've given, the history and the likes. I believe that certain groups have, have actually usurped the true message that God is trying, and has driven it into an anarchy kind of storyline. But the true message was this, there is bloodshed on our heads. 
got to be reform for police, not defunding. I believe God was shouting, church, you got to look at our history and recognize it without experiencing white guilt, because I can't walk in white guilt. I am a son of God. But I'm saying, Lord, search me and know me and see my in my heart. But I believe what happened with George Floyd, there was a revealing of the white baggage. But I believe it was also an opportunity now that God's William Seymour's will arise. Recently, we had dreams that I was raising up 100 William Seymour's. Wow. Oh, God, raise up William Seymour's that can yeah. live above the bitterness, the Brandons in this life, who take us to a new day of a of Azusa Street. You think of when I was mobilizing for the Azusa Street gathering in, in the Coliseum, you know, and I call my friend Chris Berglund up on the phone and God's stirring me. Am I to do a gathering in the Coliseum uh, on the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street revival? I call my friend, my prophet friend, Chris Bergen. I said, is God speaking to you anything about April 9th, 2016, the 110th anniversary of the Zeus Street Revival? He said, Lou, remember the dream I had when, uh, when we did the 40-day fast in 2013? I said, no, I don't remember it. He said, Lou, in the dream, he said, I got five sets of five plane tickets. And he said, the only flights that we could take were United Airlines. Mm. And in the dream, he was concerned that he would actually miss the flights. So he looked it up in the dream. When do the flights expire? And it was 1,080 days. He wakes up and immediately Googles 1,080 days. It's April 9th, 2016, the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street Revival. And God spoke to us, only a united church can heal a divided nation. It yeah. will only be found in upper rooms. Yes. And so this is a major push that right now, I'm feeling like right now, we've got to find ourselves in the upper room. There were one place in one accord and suddenly out of heaven. That yeah. was a long one. No, that's good. And, you know, that day, it was interesting how unbeknownst to Lewis Hogan and United uh, Cry, that they had scheduled a gathering at Lincoln Memorial on that same day of anniversary and then recognized it was the same day, the 110th anniversary, on Lincoln Memorial. We had Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., Alveda King, the, the niece. Uh, it was a reconciliation moment. Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's uh, daughter. It was an amazing gathering. Bishop Perry Jackson, as we gathered together in the... You guys had a warm weather with a little bit of rain in, in Los Angeles. We were freezing. Literally, it was freezing that day. Wind blowing, but yet... And there was something about from East Coast to West Coast on the 110 anniversary and the reconciliation of generations. And we even simulcasted with you uh, for a moment of that day, the older generation blessing the younger, the younger blessing the older. I, I believe that there are what I call landmark moments. We don't live and create an altar to the past, but we have landmarks along the way to give us direction to where we're going. And I believe that the call... I believe even the hidden things that you've been a part of and others have been uh, foundational to where we are today. And when the world is showing all kinds of, of their narrative and negativity and anarchy and lawlessness, that in the midst of that, God has a people who have been hidden in, in, the, in the hidden place with him that is now coming forth into a place where he can intervene like only God can do and I believe we will see an outpouring, even greater than the Jesus movement, that will have a multi-generational 
and, and a justice and righteousness connection together. You know, even a, a two years ago, Lou, I don't think I shared this with you, but I had reoccurring dreams over and over, and I realized God was saying something in that dream, and I shared it and it be- on Facebook Live, and it began to get shared all over, and, and I know that Charisma and other people picked up on it. But in that dream, it was kind of confusing because I was in an open field initially, and thousands began to gather in the open field, but we were on a stage, and it looked like it was supposed to be a Christian gathering. And my daughter, who represented, I believe, the emerging generation, was to help take us into worship. And she was looking at all these faces, and the faces were not people who normally would come to participate, but out of curiosity, with glazy eyes, they don't even know why they were there. In fact, they were even speaking the language of the world. They were acting like the world. But in that moment, I looked at her, and I believe that was to the next generation. Don't worry about what you see. Take, take humble, consecrated posture with vertical worship and watch what God will do. And as we began to worship God, the very people that were there to antagonize did not know why they were there. And all of a sudden, it began to spread across the nation in open fields and then into churches. But we saw people that were like, like even today, we see many, I believe, they are like Saul that will become like Paul. We'll see yeah. a lot of those who have been persecutors of the church who won't even understand what they're doing, but will have an, an awakening in the Lord. And now I'm seeing Sean Foyt and so many others in the midst of these places. And Sean, influenced by your life as well from the call, along with with Matt Lockett and so many movements came out of what God did in your simple obedience. And I know that has to please your heart. You've leveraged so much in the kingdom, but I saw this and I believe that that's part of what we're seeing now. We're seeing people gathering in these moments of vertical worship, not even knowing why they're participating. They're getting saved. They're getting baptized. There's reconciliation taking place in the presence of a holy God. Gosh, that's so good. God is choreographing his own narrative. In the midst of what you said, the midst of this narrative of the world, God is the author and the finisher. I've got faith for America in the middle of all all this. And so that's so encouraging. Absolutely. I was actually on a Zoom call with Dice Up and, uh, and leaders from Korea and some national leaders here, because next week we're going to actually be praying uh, around the world, and the Koreans have initiated this because they are believed for reconciliation between North and South, and so they're praying and having thousands of Koreans praying for the Church of America and for us at this time, and so we're going to be together on a two-hour call next week around the world as the Koreans pray for us, but we want to pray for them for even uh, wanting to initiate this, and so there are people from Nigeria, people from Uganda, all over the world, India, that are praying for the Church of America, because at the end of the day, it's not the world that's going to change the the soul of our nation. It's the awakened church that is the heart of the nation, that when we come together crossing racial, denominational, generational lines, and the centrality of the cross, as you said, one blood from every nation, one new man, when we come together and put aside those things that divide us so we can be a united church, as you said, Lou, then it will heal a divided nation. Yeah, amen, yes. So good. Well, Lou, I can go on for hours with you because I have such regard for you. And of course, you've influenced my life in in many ways, more the ways than than you'll ever recognize. But one of the, uh, I know there's a series of books that really defined, and you've mentioned a couple, but one of the books, I know Derek Prince wrote a book called Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. 
what are some of the things about that book and what are some of the other books that have really defined who you are in prayer and with seeking God for our generation? Well, I, I mentioned already, Doug, thank you, uh, Azusa Street by Frank Bartleman. It probably the foundational book besides Shaping History. Shaping History was given to me about 35, 36 years ago. And basically, though the book covers different dimensions of fasting, it's primarily how it changes governments. It's actually governmental intercession from the place of being seated with Christ in heavenly places as priests and kings. And so this book basically rocked my world. The book was actually written, I think it was written or, or 1973, Roe v. Wade, when Roe v. Wade came, uh, Derek Prince was moved to write this book and help start Intercessors for America. So when you talk about the connecting of that book to my own life and calling, it's all about Roe v. Wade. It's not only Roe v. Wade, but it is actually shaping history through prayer and fasting. So this became my textbook. And for 35 years, I'm really a miserable faster, Doug. There's myths. <laughs> There's myths that go around. My, I can't even fast one day unless I have a divine motivation. But when, I, when God stirs me with a prophetic vision, then I become a bulldog. <laughs> and uh, I, I have said my, my claim to fame is I've broken more fast than you all. <laughs> but... The Lord has put me on this course, and it has to do, I'm convinced, with changing history through prayer and fasting. So I've followed that book. Uh, and, and, you know, before Derek Prince died, one of the most precious things, it was his book that sent me on the journey of the call. He said in that book that in the last days, when great turmoil and crisis come to nations, it will be collective, united, massive fasting and prayer that turns the tide. That's what rocked me. And out of that, this is where the whole thing, the woman comes to me, I'm going to, I'm going to pay your salary, uh, uh, 400,000 gathered to fast and pray in DC. It was all because of Derek. And so when I heard that Derek was coming, he was like, like 86 years old. He was coming back to Florida. I called his, his group and said, is there any way that I can meet him? And so they said, you could have a half an hour with him in the hotel room. I go there to that hotel room and uh, I sit there, there, all his people are there. And I tell him, thank you as a son, I wanna honor a father that you gave me this vision of the call. He lies down on the bed and begins wailing, sobbing so deeply and I felt like I got the blessing of a father. And I said to the Lord, if you will allow me, I will take Derek Prince's seed to the nations of the earth. Wow. Out of that, the call came. And I actually believe now that this fasting and prayer is about ending. Uh, it, the main thing was ending abortion, which takes me back to Matt Lockett, where 70 young kids 16 years ago in Colorado Springs were fasting and praying for 50 days and 50 nights. And Matt, this is what happens when we fast and pray. A man named Matt Lockett in Denver could care less about abortion, has a dream, and in the dream he sees all of these kids with a whiteboard filled with abortion statistics, and they've got erasers, and they're praying all night long, banging on that whiteboard with abortion statistics. And in the dream, he comes to the leader of these groups, and he says he's never heard of his name, never know, doesn't know who he is, but his name is Lou Engel which is so shocking to me. 
His name is Lou Ingle. And in the dream, he asked me, how do these kids do this all night long? And I answer, I don't know. And I throw the eraser and the whiteboard disappears. All the statistics. It set me on a journey that I believe we are literally in a moment that literally a Wilberforce anointing. And can I just share this with everyone that's on this? Out of this kind of dream encounter and all, 2003, I'm flying home and I'm reading, uh, I'm reading the history of uh, William Wilberforce, mm. the man that's the governmental leader, the parliamentary leader, the end of the slave trade. I'm reading a quote by a man named Thomas Clarkson. And Thomas Clarkson was an abolitionist with Wilberforce. And he said, it would be well worth my whole life if I could just give my life to this call and just turn back the slave, slave trade just for a little bit. I'm on the plane reading this. The Holy Spirit falls on me. And I begin weeping in the plane. You know how that is, Doug, you know. And you're just trying to hide it. And the Lord says, you will raise up a prayer movement for the ending of abortion in America. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the beginning of my journey. And so when the movie Amazing Grace came out about Wilberforce, we had already launched this amazing storyline with Matt Lockett. And you just got to hear Matt and Will's story. It, it's the greatest story ever told, I think. That's what I call it. The greatest story ever told, <laughs> apart from the gospel. I mean, it is a narrative injected into our insanity right now that God says, I'm injecting a different narrative. And it is, it is Martin Luther King's, not his speech, but his prophecy at the great dream speech. The day will come when the sons of former slaves yes. will sit at the table of brotherhood with the sons of former slave owners. And now they're living this. It is to me, it, it was a prophecy that Martin Luther King had, and they, they're fulfilling it now. Which brings me back to this thing. This movie comes Amazing Grace, and I'm compelled to go to it because I've got this whole Wilberforce storyline. And so I, um, so I go into the movie. I get in there late, and I'm sitting like on the third floor of the only seats left in the, in the uh, theater. I'm on crook neck. I'm watching the movie. And at the end of the movie, I'm sitting there, uh, and the bagpipes begin to play, and the credits begin to roll. The Holy Spirit weeps, uh, speaks to me, says, you preached in a movie theater when you were young. Can you still preach in movie theaters? And I said, oh, no. But I stood up as everyone's standing, and I lifted my hands, and I said, let's pray. And everyone stops. And I call on God and said, God, raise up a William Wilberforce in America who will end the slave trade of abortion in America. I'm shaken. I walk out, and a lady comes up to me. I don't know who she is. She says, I was thinking at the end of that movie, if Lou Ingle were here, he would stand up and start preaching. And then you did. That story, I've told it. People get rocked by it. But the Lord rebuked me recently. And he said, Lou, you told that story because you thought it was a cool dream. But you didn't realize that you prayed and I'm answering your prayer. President Trump is your William Wilberforce. He just appointed Amy Coney Barrett, that Matt Lockett dream two years ago, that Amy Coney Barrett would be the next justice. And they've been praying for her for two years. I'm saying I believe right now, whether you like him or not, 
We're in an issue of bloodshed and a day of reckoning for 61 million babies. And I believe that God has raised up President Trump to be a guy that would actually end the slave trade of abortion. I've come to a point where I'm not going to apologize. I am going to shout it wide. It is not Democrat. It's not Republican. It's the doctrine of the shedding of innocent blood, where we're headed to a civil war with millions of our people dying. If we don't do this, deal with it in our courts. He'll deal with it in Appomattox Courthouse. And I'm on fire for it. I'm on fire for an adoption movement. And I'm on fire for a prayer revival movement that we could get a Zeus' street and the ending of abortion. There's where I'm burning right now. Yes, and what you just said was so much because the providential moments with God that he destines, and out of your simple obedience in the hidden place of prayer, not expecting to be anybody, anything, it was nameless and faceless, that called intercession, a broken heart, and then God began to put these things together. Matt and Will Ford would have never met if it had not been these chain of events. Everything we do, it's like pay it forward. It's kind of like, it's a wonderful life. Everything is interconnected in in our simple obedience to God and making ourselves available to him. And he's able to do what only he can do. And, you know, just briefly, Lou, just some of these movements, Justice Houses of Prayer, Bound for Life, so many other things have emerged from uh, and many were impacted from the calls and the things that you put together or that God used you to, to, uh, to trumpet. And look what's happening. It's, it's literally created movements that is generational that we are all beneficiaries of. Doug, I, it's so unbelievable. 16 years ago, a young man is in that 50 days and 50 nights of intercession. He's sitting there and suddenly God speaks to him. Just a young guy speaks to him and says, one Nazarite from the city of Las Vegas could shake the whole tr- sex trafficking industry of that city. For 15 minutes, he's under the spirit saying, what do I do with this word? Shall I get up out of my seat? Shall I say something? And instead, 15 minutes later, a young man stands up, takes the microphone, and he says, he says last night I had a dream that one Nazarite from the city of Las Vegas could shake the whole sex trafficking industry. It's all about dreams. I have a dream. If you hang around the dream king, you get into a dream stream, you join yourself to a dream team, and you do the Martin Luther King. Today, You, I can't even tell, tell you because he is shaking industries of sex trafficking and porn like you wouldn't believe. One of the sons that came out of praying your dreams. I, I had a dream, Doug, I had a dream in 2017 of a massive women's movement, Esther movement. You may have heard of that. It was an Esther movement. It was like a revival. And uh, it's the whole thing that women, uh, women are going to rise that will deal with principalities and powers like witchcraft and abortion. I am on fire. I want to talk to you, Doug. I think you and I, we need to work together. I want to put a million women on the mall. I am burning for it. It happened in a prophetic moment four years ago. We saw the last stand for America would be a million women who will stand and cry out for their sons and daughters. And I'm having all these young ladies calling me with dreams that I'm I'm mobilizing a, a million women now. And I'm thinking there's another movement coming and, and it's women it's the Esthers and the Deborahs. I believe, I believe Amy Coney Barrett is the exact, sorry, but I believe the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg will have millions of ghosts mm. 
She presided over a period of millions of human beings. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm simply to say those little children, I don't understand it. Line up 60 million, 60 million teenagers and have a governmental leader say it's legal to kill those people and gun them down. There would be a moral outcry. The problem is the church doesn't believe the Bible that these children before the womb are actually human beings. Oh, I think, I think there's coming a great accountability. I'm struck by this. I, I'm struck by this. We build the tombs of the monuments of, of the prophets and say, we lived in the days of our fathers. We wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus said, see, Jesus, therefore, you're doubly worthy of guilt because you're going to kill me. The very people that are build, building the monuments to Martin Luther King and the Wilderforce are actually killing babies. They're doing exactly what Jesus said. And because of this, there will be a day of reckoning for that bloodshed. I'm sorry to be in so intense, but we need some prophetic voices to roar in this nation. We cannot go on with this thing. I believe Amy Coney Barrett, she is a Deborah. She's a judge and a mother in Israel. Yeah. It's a sign that something is coming down. It's awesome because, you know, even prior to when we did the uh, gathering, the, the Esther call up in D.C., uh, and we were part, I was honored to be a part of that. Yes. But think about people like Laura uh, Allred or Laura Zavala Allred or uh, Bethany in New England, Justice House of Prayer. And then, of course, both were passionate young women who were reaching young women. They were birthed, and they consider you and me spiritual father. In fact, we were both of their weddings, so yeah, part of their lives. Does that, doesn't that move you, Doug? It does. It's it's... them rising up. Oh, this is what we live for, the spirit of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I've always said that the great dream of a father is to put his son or daughter on the stage of history yes. and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And... Uh, yeah, Doug, I think we've lived that. I've had some pretty bad fallings in life, but God has been so gracious. And my, my sons and daughters have covered my nakedness. And I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with this. Well, you know, the thing is, is that God, is, is who is perfect, is not looking for perfect individuals, but those who say yes to him and let him do a work of perfection in and through us, not because of us. It's by the abounding, great, and amazing grace of God. And we just thank God for the legacy in, in lives, because it's beyond, it's not institutional, is it? It's incarnational. We look at Isaiah 1, and it says, all of our raising of our hands to pray, our get-togethers and gatherings, God says he did not regard them, but there was a reason. God does regard prayer, but they forgot it was the shedding of innocent blood, areas oh. of injustice. Areas yes. of orphans and widows. It's all right in Isaiah 1, which is the point of first reference for all of Isaiah. But he's saying, look, if you want me to move in your prayers, then make sure you deal with areas of sin, injustice, taking care of the shedding of innocent blood and righteousness and orphans and widows. And Derek Prince, as you said earlier, I remember a time here in the Humble Civic Center near Houston that I was honored to speak before him at a gathering, one of my last times that I got to to see him. And I remember when I finished speaking, he gets up and he said of all the years of his ministry, he felt there was one piece that he had neglected. And that was the area of the oppressed, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. 
So he'd written a booklet that I've given out thousands to. In fact, uh, Mike Reisner, who's also a spiritual son of ours and yours, and uh, he's on, on a call today, and he's got a great ministry called Core Love for Orphans. Uh, he's gotten them by the case from us because he loves that book because it brings in presence, prayer, and being tangible to the righteousness of the culture of taking care of the orphan, the widow. And when you had come and done the Bound for Life, and we did a, a, a walk from the largest abortion clinic in yeah. Houston, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, that he that we walked from the Charismatic Catholic Center to the abortion clinic, and we had a Bound for Life moment and praying. Uh, and I remember that moment that it was God is seeing us moving, not just in our prayers. God put in your heart and my heart to not just talk about why it's wrong to have abortion, but let the church adopt spiritually and be practical in fostering and adoptions and, and giving opportunities for women. Instead of saying, don't do it, we say, but here's your alternatives. Here's other things that you can do yeah. that can help raise that child, even if you can't. And now we have, through YWAM, the first Christian state licensed adoption agency right here in our building here in Houston. So it's amazing how what's come out of obedience and what God has done in your life. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier about the Nazarite. You had written a book on, on digging the wells of revival, but you also did a teaching on what is the Nazarite DNA. What is that? Because a lot of people misconstrue what that means, but I believe that we are in a place to be not separated from the world, but the world does not influence us, but we're separated unto God so we can impact the world around us. What is it to you that is the Nazarite DNA? Well, the, it's an Old Testament reality that I think is fully embraced in the New Testament reality, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That means you don't have a lot of passions to share with other things. You, we've dialed down our fire. We've diluted our fire. John was spoken. He's the guy, the Bible says he was to drink wine from his birth. He was to be completely possessed. And a high calling demands a high consecration. I, I tell all of our the folks that I have relationship with is that there are times that we don't judge others, but we others may, we may not. Because if God's calling you to a deeper place of consecration and higher place of influence, there are things that we have to quit arguing about and say, others may, I may not, because I'm separated unto God. I think I've used even that very quote in my book, Nazarite DNA. Wow. A high calling like John the, Baptist, John the Baptist demands a consecration. It demands a separation. This is why we've said, even with the Nazarites, they wouldn't, they wouldn't cut their hair. It was how far can I go with my consecration? The hair was the glory of their consecration. I mean, legitimate pleasure. They were they were um, denying themselves the legitimate pleasures of this life for extreme pleasures of knowing God. God led me through this whole journey. I remember reading a book on, on fasting. Uh, it's about the John the Baptist fast. And it said you could have an influence of a two or a seven or a ten like John the Baptist according to your desire. I, I cried to God, give me a ten for America. This is pre-call. Give me a 10. I said, confirm this to me. I go to a meeting right after that. A guy's preaching. And he says, and you could have an influence of a 2 or a 7 or a 10, according to your desire. Gave an altar call. I dove for the altar, knowing that God was calling me into a separated life. And I don't think I've always done this. But I, but I know 
And, and recently I was praying to her. It came back to me. I have not yet seen a tent because I haven't seen it turn, America turn back to God. Mm. But I said, give me a tent. And I don't know how that's going to work, but I, I'm, I just turned 68. And I'm just saying, God, I, I am asking for a tent. Mm. I'm praying for 100,000 LGBT to be saved, transformed by the power of God. Bob Jones saw it in 1989. I am praying those prophecies. And we should be more burning for Jesus' revival than Trump's election or somebody else's. Come with revival. I just this morning crying out, give me that Azusa Street revival. And so that Nazarite is, is actually, it's, it was for men and for women. You see, it was a similar vow to the priests. But what the priesthood had to do to guard and honor the, 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 the national worship of Yahweh, the Nazarites did it as a spontaneous act of their heart. They weren't doing it because it was their duty of, as a priest in Levi. They were doing it because God lit a fire in themselves. Yeah. And so the day after the call, when I called all those Nazarites together in 2000, I had a dream. I actually said to a young man, I said, there's more revelation to be given to us concerning the Nazarites. That night, God get, answers that revelational statement. And in the dream, I see number 6-2 roll down before me. Oh, I love God when he gives you dreams that is the Bible. And it said, if a man or a woman desires to make the special vow of a Nazarite, and in the dream, it was the word desires. Not all translations have that. It was the desire. And the word desire leaps up the page into my heart. And instantly I know it's not the desire of the Nazarite. It's the desire of God who is hotly pursuing Nazarites. Mm -hmm. He is yearning for separated ones. And in the dream, I started crying and interceding for my children. Hotly pursue Jesse. Hotly pursue Josiah. Hotly pursue Jonathan. I believe I was actually praying for the youth of America. Hotly pursue my kids. Separate them to the fire. And I think, I think that message is needed now because usually the Nazarites were raised up in a time of crisis. I raised up your, among your young men prophets. You commanded them not to prophesy. I raised up from your sons Nazarites. But you told them to drink wine. When kids begin to burn, we can't shut down their inward fires. We've got to encourage that Nazarite burn. And so that's, I have so many stories. It became the foundational message of almost everything that I've done. Wow. So see, all these things, I want to encourage you, Lou, the things that we have, that we have done in private has now, is going to be public in influence. It's not because we sought that. It's because, the, you know, we are building on foundations laid. The prices have been paid. Uh, prayers that have been paid, the sacrifices made. We're seeing the culmination of these things. And what I was encouraged by is that God's, the prayers to God are perpetual. So yes. when I was with Governor Jindal back when he was governor of Louisiana and also Governor Haley, when she was governor of South Carolina in 2015 for prayer gatherings that we were helping to be a part of there, um, I told both of them because they came from the Punjab region of India, their heritage. I said, you know, that both of you who are parents are Hindus and you become Christians and now governors of these great states in America, do you know you're the beneficiaries and we're the beneficiaries of the prayers of John Hyde, praying John Hyde, 
during the Punjab prayer union that they prayed every day for 30 minutes to an hour until revival would come. And the Sailcott revivals came from the Punjab prayer union, which is parts of Pakistan now, but also India. Yes. I said, now here both of you are from the Punjab region, and now you're both Christians and you're both uh, leaders in our country. And of course, Governor Haley became ambassador to the United Nations. And, and, uh, and so both of them were the results of prayers of another generation. So I believe we're coming into a culmination of all the prophetic words and prayers of old and culminating throughout the church history. We're in a moment. This is a corporate moment where I believe God's about to do something only he can do if we, the church, would be in agreement in the Isaiah 1 model and Isaiah 58 model that we would come before the Lord with presence and prayer gatherings, but do so with the heart of justice and and intolerance of the shedding of innocent blood to take care of the orphan and the widow. This is our moment, and I believe that God can do what only he can do. And I do want to have you, Lou, share uh, some of the things that's on your heart right now and how to pray. We're all part of these various prayer initiatives. How can we pray for you, and how can we engage with you of where we are in this critical juncture? Well, you know, uh, it was in uh, August that I was saying to, I said to the Lord, I, I know that my calling is the ending of abortion and revival and race healing. I don't know where that, how we find one another politically. I'm burdened by it, but I do want to read a, a statement by William Wilberforce because we can't just honor the man if we don't honor what he said. He said this, Wilberforce argued concerning the murderous slave trade of his time. There is a principle above everything that is political. Can we get that? There is a principle above everything that is political. And when I reflect on the command that says, thou shalt do no murder, believing the authority to be divine, how can I dare to set out any reasoning of my own against it? Do you understand? This is a profound statement of of his philosophy. There is a principle above everything that is political. And when I reflect on the command that says, thou shalt do no murder, believing the authority to be divine, how can I dare to set out any reasoning of my own against it? And when we think of eternity and of the future consequences of all human conduct, what is there in this life that could make any man contradict the dictates of his conscience? the principles of justice, the laws of religion and of God. He is actually communicating concerning his own political understanding. He said that there were there are certain political issues you can push here, then pull back. But when it comes to the command, thou shalt not kill, he says, I am not at liberty to rule in my politics over the command, thou shalt not kill. I believe millions of Christians right now are actually raising up their own reasoning against the foundational moral thing, Genesis, thou shalt not shed innocent blood, for in the image of God, I believe this is the most foundational thing, and that actually Wilberforce was saying that we will be held accountable, even in our voting. I've said this, this election is not a referendum on the character of Joe Biden or the character of President Trump. It is a referendum on the church 
as where it will stand on foundational moral, moral, fixed moral law of thou shalt not kill. I believe this is the church's final exam. You now know where I'm coming from. So before in August, I was crying out to God, say, crying out to God, say, God, I've called fast. I believe Derek Prince's word is coming even to this moment where I literally fasting could shape the history of governments. I don't fully understand that, but I believe it could actually shift even people's minds in how they vote. And I said, but Lord, I've called so many fasts. I'm sick of calling fasts and I can't call a fast unless you, I know that you're calling a fast. And the Lord gives me a dream the following night. And in the dream, I'm talking to President Trump and, and I could feel his loneliness. I could feel the pressure in his soul. He says nothing to me. And in the dream, I explode inwardly with passion. I will pour out my soul for 40 days of fasting for you, President Trump, and for America. I wake up and I said, Lord, what's got me to the place I am, I've walked in dreams for 35 years. And I just said, I'm going to blow the trumpet. Now there are thousands that have been with me on this hinge of history fast. And it's not about President Trump. It's just for the unborn. It's for America. Stop the shedding of innocent blood. And there are other things as well. But so this is where I'm burning. It's the prayer we prayed for 16 years with my life band. Jesus, I plead your blood over my sins and the sins of my nation. God and abortion. Send revival to America. Recently, my prophet friend had a dream. And I'll end with this, Doug. He saw a volleyball court. And on one side, it was a blue side of the volleyball court. And another side was a red side of the volleyball court. And the, the game was tied at 2020. And in the dream, he knew it is the battle over the courts going on right now in 2020. Mm-hmm. And in this dream, the blue side had been scoring points, even though they were knocking the ball out of bounds. I believe since 1973, America, the courts, have been giving points to that court side because of the shedding of innocent blood. They changed the boundaries of when human life begins. And it was 20 to 20, and we had to score two more points. And in the dream, I called a timeout. And I called all the team of the red side of the court, and I pulled them together, and I have a book, and it's a dusty book, and I blow the dust off of it, and it's Reese Howell's playbook. It said PB, Reese Howell's playbook for the battle for Britain. Win the battle of the skies. And he knew in the dream the PB was pleading the blood. It is our only, our only plea before the court of heaven. It's the blood of Jesus that speaks better than the blood of 61 million babies and the blood of George Floyd and so many people who've been killed in the streets and in the schools. Jesus, I plead your blood. And in the dream, I said, you are all now strikers or spikers. Everyone, even the server is a spiker. I believe, and in the dream, when we spiked, it became BB on the other side in red, better blood. Right now, I believe, Right now is the time to plead the blood of Jesus before the court of heaven for America. It is our only plea, our only hope. Jesus, I plead your blood. I am deeply ingrained 
Within 2000, when God spoke to us about the courts ending abortion, we traveled across country, and 16 years ago, we stood in front of the Supreme Court, 70 kids with tape on our mouths, pleading the blood of Jesus, and I, and I get a phone call from someone in the Supreme Court, a lady, and she says, I hear you want a special tour of the Supreme Court building. I said, I would love that. She said, meet me on the side door of the Supreme Court building. I meet her, and she said, years ago, I lived in Florida, and a prophecy was given to me that one day I would be working in the Supreme Court building and Roe v. Wade would be overturned. It was shock and awe to me. And then she said, and two weeks ago, I had a dream that Justice Ginsburg would ask me to be her assistant. A week later, she said, just, just recently, Justice Ginsburg asked her to be assistant. I am talking to the, that she's taking me a tour, the, the assistant to Justice Ginsburg. I said this, Doug, is there a basketball court in the Supreme Court building? Because I heard there is. And she says, yes, as a matter of fact, there is a basketball court. And it is exactly on top of where the Supreme Court holds its hearings. And they call it the highest court in the land. Mm. I said, take me to that court. Mm. And I stood there and decreed the ending of Roe v. Wade. Righteous judges who will overrule this, just like Dred Scott, they will not call that child in the womb. They'll call him a human being. And I believe right now the church has got to stand in the Supreme Court of Heaven, in their prayers, in their fastings, and in their votings to declare this is the day where we don't have to go to an Appomattox courthouse. 750,000 men died on the battlefields because of the bloodshed of the slave. God, Take us to Matt Lockett's courtroom, to his house. Save us and spare us. That's what's on my heart. I want to encourage each and every one of you across this country and those who are watching from other parts of the world. I just want you to be encouraged because out of the most humanly impossible situations, just like with Hannah, Hannah was in the most humanly impossible situation, but out of human impossibility in her desperation for God, committing her calling to God and, and promising that her child to be offered to God in his service, uh, God brought forth out of an empty womb, out of human impossibility, a new generation of righteous judge and prophet. I believe God, out of the most humanly impossible situations of the past few decades, is about to bring forth a corporate generation of prophetic voices and a corporate generation of righteous judges we need the Samuels to arise, the Esthers, the Deborahs. I believe this is our culmination moment. Don't give up. Don't draw back as into the perdition, but push forward. Because again, we're not beholden to the elephant or to the donkey party, but we are beholden to, and we are part of the government of the lamb and the lion. Everything we do should be filtered through God's word, character, nature, and spirit. This is our moment. We're at a critical juncture. And no matter who becomes president in November, there's still a long view need of the church engaged and positioned to bring and be a part of the greatest outpouring we've ever seen in our time in this nation and around the world. This is our moment. So don't let the naysayers, don't let the media, don't let others, because those who tell the story define the narrative and create the history. We have a story to tell. Don't let the world define the story. We have a story. 
So those who tell our story, we tell our story because we've overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. We should define the narrative. What is the narrative we want presented by our story? So then we see history created because those who tell the story define the narrative and create the history. It's our moment, everybody. Don't draw back. Don't let the enemy divide and conquer, but let us recognize we're part of something greater than ourselves. It's time to mend our net, to be cast by the Lord, to see a great harvest. What an amazing episode this was, and what an incredible time we had on the Zoom call. Again, I want to encourage you, if you want updates about our next Leadership Transforming series, you can sign up for email updates at somebodycares.org. You can also find a complete list of the authors and books that Doug and Lou both recommended on today's episode at our page on charismapodcastnetwork.com forward slash show forward slash a word in season. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.